If Reality Check Radio enriches your day and life, support us to keep bringing you the content, voices, perspectives, and dose of reality you won't get anywhere else. Visit www.realitycheck.radio forward slash donate. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. And we actually have the man of the hour uh, to talk to. Uh, to his critics, uh, he's inflaming a race war and sending New Zealand back to the dark ages. To his fans, of which I'm one, he is leading a very important debate about the constitutional significance of the treaty and what it means. And I refer, of course, to the leader of the ACT Party, uh, Mr. David Seymour. Good morning, David. Good morning, Rodney. Good to see you. Well, it is great, and it's very good to have you on because um, I have to say I don't follow, and you can imagine why, I don't follow the news much because <clears throat> I find it so distressing and so misleading. And um, so I am a little unaware of where things are at with your bill, what's its intention, and yet here I am, a great fan and a great supporter for this debate. And I should also, I don't want to uh, give you too big an ego, but I have to say I was very proud that you went to Waitangi and fronted up. I think that was very, very significant. Did you find that tough? No. Um, a couple of things about Waitangi. One is that um, what's reported is not the same as what happens. So, I mean, you will have been up there in the past as an MP for the most part. It's a lot of people that are there for you know, a celebration of New Zealand's birthday, uh, for a discussion about its future. Uh, and then there'll always be a small minority uh, who try and grab the headlines and get attention. And unfortunately, two things happen. Uh, one is that for whatever reason, uh, the proceedings don't seem to have good ways of shutting that down. So a small number of people are often able to take over the proceedings. And I don't know if that's a, a feature of tikanga or the people that do it or or what, but at any event, um, often where you might think people would be told to just shut up, sit down and be a bit respectful, they, they tend to take over the show. And the second thing is that the New Zealand media, um, who often know very little about the Maori world, uh, tend to report those people as representing all Maori, which in my view is kind of racist in itself. But um, in any event, you, you get to the end of Waitangi, and uh, it's all terrible, it's all conflicts and all the rest. And the truth is that it's nothing like that. So to answer your question, I can understand why people, you know, they see the media reporting a small minority within Waitangi who who create all the problems and it seems terrible. Uh, but I'm never nervous about going up there because my experience has always been very positive. And you weren't concerned this time either? No, I mean, there were lots of people that said, you know, it's all going to be terrible. Um, I knew that wouldn't be the case. I told a lot of people beforehand uh, and I was right. Have you had any security concerns? Have you had to have been have you been offered protection? I ask that because I remember when Don Brash was leader of the opposition, it was unprecedented because as leader of the opposition, he got round the clock security because of his following his Orewa speech. Has that been a thing? 
Well, there's always people making threats. Um, you know, most MPs, most years will have someone send them a message, especially now it's easier to do. So, yep, that carries on. And, you know, if they need to be taken seriously, they are. But for the most part, they're not. Just some people sounding off. Um, at Waitangi, I had security following me, um, which I'd never had before. Um, and that wasn't something I asked for. That was something that was offered. Um, and I felt that, you know, I'd be a bit foolish to turn it around because maybe they knew something more than I did. But I think in the end, it was probably one of their most uneventful assignments that they had for a long time. Oh, isn't that great? Oh, good mm. for you. Now, tell us about the genesis of this treaty. What is it? The Principles Bill. The Principles Bill. Tell us about the genesis of this bill. Well, a couple of things. I mean, one is, you know, people at various times have said, oh, this is political, you're taking advantage of it, whatever. Uh, if you go back to the maiden speech I gave when I entered Parliament in 2014, um, it says that our country has achieved equality amongst people, first with universal suffrage and voting. Uh, you know, we've had homosexual reform, we've had gay marriage, we've had all of these things that are basically seen each person as alike in dignity, regardless of their, you know, characteristics, that they're all human. And the second thing I said was, for some strange reason, despite having achieved that, uh, we're now desperately trying to go back and create new distinctions in law uh, between my Maori and my non-Maori ancestors, and I think that's wrong. Um, so, you know, I've been saying that consistently ever since the first day I was in Parliament. Um, the second thing is um, what I was referring to is that back in 1975, um, the then Labour government passed the Treaty of Waitangi Act, uh, and it said that there are principles of the treaty and it's the role of the Waitangi Tribunal um, to interpret what they mean. Uh, just and, pull you up on that point. Yeah. Did it actually say, I didn't know that, yeah. and I haven't read the act, did it actually say that it's the tribunal's job to interpret what the principles are? Absolutely. And the, oh, um, my goodness. Uh, That's the, the crazy. Treaty, the Treaty of Waitangi Act was, you know, the, the main thing it did was establish the tribunal and that was one of its purposes so oh my goodness prior to that there'd never been any treaty principles um and for the next 10 years or so it didn't really matter too much um until uh richard preble was uh privatizing the electricity companies or at least turning them into state-owned enterprises and at that time the maori council uh went to court uh because they were concerned about what would happen to the water rights of the water flowing through the dams if, if these electricity companies became private. And Richard Preble had um, aimed to solve that problem by sort of saying, look, this, this people acting under this law, the SOE Act, will uh, follow the principles of the treaty. So this was the first time it really mattered because there was big stuff at stake. There was the you know huge value of the water going through these dams and the electricity it generated and so on. So as a result, um, the Maori Council went off to the Court of Appeal uh, and got what was known uh, as the Lands case. Uh, Lord Cook of Thorndon was the, the judge, um, and he found that these principles meant uh, several things that the government had a, a role of consultation and active protection, but but most most significantly, he said that uh, the treaty had formed a relationship akin to a partnership. 
In other words, the Crown and the treaty signatories and their descendants had a duty to work through their differences in a respectful way. And and that in itself um, was quite a benign thing. I mean, it basically said, look, you know, you've got a problem here, sort it out between yourselves, be good to each other. However, that word partnership really took uh, hold and it's mutated over the last 40 years since the land's decision in 1987. It's mutated into this idea that we all have, um, you know, the, this almost republic rather than a democracy where the crown is in partnership with Maori. And if you're not part of that partnership, you're not the crown. Most of us aren't. You're not Maori. Most of us aren't. Uh, then you sort of don't fit into this arrangement. And um, I think the way that that's evolved over the last 40 years has become deeply divisive. So if you look at something simple like the Human Rights Commission, they now have a Maori chief executive and they have a non-Maori chief executive. Why? Because the partnership requires that every government department becomes a microcosm of that uh, relationship. Now, you know, that's happening in what was going to be in the Three Waters Representation Boards. It was in the Maori Health Authority. Uh, it's in the way that you got consulted on developments under the Natural and Built Environments Act. Much of this the government's getting rid of, I'm pleased to say. But what we haven't got rid of is this basic idea that underpins all those initiatives that New Zealand is a partnership between races and therefore to know your rights, you have to know which part of the partnership you're part of. And if you are not in the um, uh, you know Maori side that's in partnership with the Crown, you, maybe you don't have any of these rights. Now, my proposal really is very simple. Uh, we take those so-called principles and remember, Parliament's been silent about them for 50 years. It's never said what they are. It just said they exist. And we say, no, we, we think that the way that it's gone off beam with the courts and the Waitangi Tribunal and the public service over the past uh, 50 years is wrong. We are going to reassert that, yes, Parliament says there are principles, and they are what the Maori text of the treaty says. Number one, the government has kawanatanga, or the right to govern. Uh, number two, uh, that we all have tiranga tiratanga or self-determination over ourselves and our property. And number three, we all have natikanga katoa ritetahi, or the same rights and duties. And there'll be people who say, oh, you don't know what the treaty means. Oh, I can tell you that that's exactly what it means. That's how Professor Kafaru, uh translated it for the lands case in 1987. That is the Maori version in modern English by one of the top uh, Maori and treaty scholars in history. Uh, that's that's all we want to do. And once we do that, all of these issues where we're divided by race and public services on the basis that we're part of a partnership, the rationale for that goes away and we can actually go forward as a country of human beings alike in dignity, with some big problems to solve and prepared to solve them without racial division at every turn. Because the treaty itself is a wonderful creature of its time and it's a classical liberal document isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, it is absolutely something that you and I and any libertarian class slash classical liberal slash uh, conservative person who believes in individual responsibility and freedom would readily sign up to. Absolutely. If you, so you've got, the bill isn't yet written, I understand. 
No. So the other thing that's happened is that the Prime Minister's made me the Associate Minister of Justice with the explicit and only purpose of uh, drafting and introducing this bill to Parliament. Uh, so we'll be working with that uh, with the, the Justice Department officials. We'll we'll get the, the bill drafted up. We'll probably do a consultation draft that we'll put out to public to comment on before it gets introduced to Parliament. Um, and then uh, it will get introduced to Parliament and debated. And the purpose of the bill is to put into words these principles as articulated in the treaty, which has never been uh, as part of our legislation, but to offer it up as a referendum, what, at the next election? That's right. So um, when we did the End of Life Choice Act, um, the bill passed, but it had a clause called the commencement clause, and that, that clause said this law only becomes a law if a majority of people vote for it to be so. Um, and then the simple question at the referendum was yes or no, do you want the End of Life Choice Act to become a law? And people did, and now it is, and, and that was all uh, all great. Um, we've proposed to do the same thing with the Treaty Principles Act because this is more than just any other law. This is constitutional, and I think it would be helpful, A, if people were able to have the, the debate publicly about whether or not they agree with this rather than, than just being a law parliament passed, um, and B, I think it would send a message to the courts that this is not just another one of Parliament's laws that you can sort of do as you want with. This is something the people of New Zealand have signed up to en masse. Uh, so those would be two advantages of putting it to referendum. Um, but, you know, the funny thing is with end-of-life choice, I went in without a referendum. Part of the political dealings, I ended up with one. Um, this, we're going in with a referendum. We we may end up without one. But that's um, nonetheless, you know, i got to get ultimately 63 votes to pass each stage of this through Parliament. Interesting. So what you're saying is the bill would be passed by Parliament but wouldn't receive royal assent unless the referendum is successful. Exactly, yeah. And so there'd be nothing further for Parliament to do. Well, it would. To be really technical, it, it would receive the royal assent, but the bill that would receive the royal assent would would be a bill that didn't come into force unless there was a referendum. Yes, um, but but what is basically the same thing. Um, and and you're right, it's what you might call a self-executing uh, bill. Yes. So once people vote yes, it's confirmed. If um, people vote no, then it's just a piece of paper. It's no longer a law. And that. It gives you a great advantage for a referendum for the citizens because you actually know what you're voting for because you and I know that parliament and politicians is a tricky place. And you could have a referendum on a bill, vote in its favour, and by time it winds its way through parliament, it gets changed. Yep. So I think the way we suggest doing it solves two potential problems. Uh, one is that there'll be people who kind of sit there and they say, oh, um, you know, we, uh, we, we, we think this is too complicated to put to a referendum. Well, so was euthanasia, but we, we didn't put euthanasia to referendum. We just said, you know, Parliament's passed this law. Do you want it to come into effect? Uh, and so people could look up exactly what they were voting for in great detail. Uh, and the second part is, as you say, 
you know, people sometimes say, oh, we have a referendum, but it's non-binding and the politicians don't follow through. Well, in this case, the politicians do their bit, and then the people get to say yes or no. So mm. it is, in a sense, a binding referendum. It's very interesting. I'd never thought of that before. It's a wonderful mechanism. Now, you specifically referred to the Maori translation of the treaty, which, of course, came second. Why was that? Why did you refer particularly to the Maori translation? There's a few things there. Um, number one is that the Maori translation is the one that was signed almost exclusively. The, the English translation was signed um, by a relatively small number. I think of about 40 chiefs near Raglan sometime after February 6th. Um, everywhere else it was the Maori version that was signed. The second thing is that in international law, there's generally an idea that, you know, it's the um, indigenous version of the text that should be most binding. And that partly comes from the idea that usually it's the person who proposes the treaty who kind of bears the onus of proof and um, suffers any um, concessions and in interpretation. So if you start with the Maori text, I, I think, you know, apart from the fact it's the one that's signed, it's also the right way to do it because it means people can't say, oh, well, you know, this is a trick or it's not what we signed up to or you proposed it differently. Um, starting with the Maori text, uh, I think, you know, it makes it watertight and fair and it prevents a whole lot of people coming back and saying, well, this is a have or whatever. But it's a funny thing, isn't it? Because, yes, you're starting with the Maori text, but you're actually starting with the translation of the Maori text. And, of course, Professor Hugh Carfrew can be called and is called by the activists who say there are two versions of the treaty, the Maori version and the English version, and draw great comfort from this Maori version, which they interpret. Yeah. And they can readily say and do say that Sir Hugh was a creature of his time and place. Well, he, he may well be, but I mean, I think, you know, Hugh's translation of the Maori text into modern English is being regarded as authoritative, even by the Waitangi Tribunal for a very long time. Uh, you know, it's, an, it's annotated, it's detailed. Um, I, I think at some point we have to get a, a, an agreement on what the Māori text means for those who can't read Māori. It needs to be interpreted by the rest of New Zealand for it to have any weight or importance. Mm. So then the next question is, you know, how often would you like to update the, the translation of the Māori text into modern English? Um, now, there's people who say, oh, well, you know, as you say, you know, Sir Hugh is sadly no longer with us. Um, it was almost 40 years since he did his translation, so maybe you know it needs to be updated. I don't think that there's going to be a future for continuous updates of the um, Maori text. So, uh, you know, we we stick with what Hugh said as the definitive word on um, on on what the Maori text means in modern English, and the the Waitangi Tribunal seems to agree because they've had it on their website since the internet was invented. The critics, it's a difficult debate because I get headlines that you are, this is extraordinary to me, and I don't know how you handle this, are rewriting the treaty, mm. which is the most peculiar thing. It's this accusation is what they're doing. 
and they turn around and accuse you because it's this idea of a partnership and co-governance and all these other rights that supposedly fall out of the treaty. That's been the rewriting of the treaty. What you're saying is the treaty's great. What we need to do is legislate the treaty as it was written and signed in 1840. And yet here you are being accused of rewriting a treaty. And I mean, by serious academics and journalists providing a critique and firing the mob up. Yeah, it is It is pretty extraordinary, the, the standard of debate sometimes. I mean, you know, people say I'm rewriting the treaty. That That is actually, you know, there's no way that that is a sentence that makes sense. Um, and as you say, the interpretation of what it means to modern New Zealand, well, that's been an ongoing project for at least the last 50 years, arguably for 184 years now. Um, all I'm doing is democratising the interpretation of the treaty and letting Parliament have a say, which it hasn't had for 50 years. Um, the idea that what I'm doing is radically new or different, let alone actually changing the treaty, is just not true. And it's not, you know, you can prove it's not true. Um, but unfortunately, that's kind of the standard of debate we, we have in New Zealand. And it's it's a big worry for a lot of people. It's going to be a great debate because we've never had it and we've never had it in a way that's been led by a politician and brave enough to stand up to the journalists and to the activists and I'd say to the left and say, no, this is what we're standing for. This is what we're doing. And then actually forcing a bill into, or getting a bill into parliament, not forcing a bill, getting a bill into parliament to be considered by a select committee, that in itself creates a huge debate. And once you, once you do that, the rhetoric has to sort of evaporate as being not on point. Well, that's certainly what I hope. I, I mean, ultimately, one of the things that this bill does is it forces people to say, look, you, you know, either you believe in universal human rights and everyone having legal equality and equal dignity as human beings, uh, or you don't. Now, if you do, uh, then you can't allow it to stand that some citizens are in partnership with the Crown and others aren't. As, as is currently interpreted, that that can't be a thing. There's no successful societies that have tried to do that. Um, on the other hand, if people want to come out and seriously argue that New Zealand should be a kind of republic where um, there are different types of citizens, a bit like Plato's Republic, uh, then you know they can come out and, and argue that. Um, but you know that is the core of the debate, and really. Uh, it comes down to whether Article 2, which said that all New Zealanders had te rauranga, te rautanga. well, at the time, all New Zealanders really meant all Maori because that's basically the only people that were here. Mm. The question is, should that now extend to all New Zealanders, including the people who got off the plane at Auckland Airport to start their time as New Zealanders just this morning? Mm. Uh, that's that's really the essential question. Does te rauranga, te rautanga extend to all? or only to some. And if we can get through that basic question, uh, I think we have the potential to come out as a much stronger country, but I'm not seeing 
any of my opponents come out and say, no, actually, we really do believe that there should be different statuses uh, based on your background. It's that old problem, isn't it, that they can't actually argue it because they know they're on a loser. Well, I think that's true, but um, you know, the further the bill advances, the, the tougher it is for them. In the New Zealand First uh, Coalition Agreement, they have a reference to reviewing all use of the treaty principles in legislation. I guess the idea being saying, what are the implications of this, or what are, what is the purpose? I remember there was a proposal that may have been ACT, maybe New Zealand First, I can't recall to actually just expunge all references to the treaty principles as being vacuous. How does that work side-by-side uh, side your bill? Well, I think the two initiatives can be complementary. I mean, first of all, you know, there's a lot of acts that say you've got to have reference to the treaty. So, for example, as the Associate Minister of Health, I'm responsible for farming. And we've got big problems there. You know, a lot of drugs that New Zealanders would like and frankly need um, that New Zealand's government can't afford. Uh, and then there's a lot of functional stuff with the way Pharmac operates. You know, after 30 years, it may not be the world leading model that, that it used to be when it was formed. But everywhere you look in the operation of this thing, you've got to ask how is Pharmac upholding its obligation to the principles of the treaty? And I think that uh, there's a reasonable argument some people will make that actually, you know what, we're in the business of procuring the best pharmaceuticals at the best price to benefit as many patients as possible. It doesn't actually have much to do with the treaty. So I can absolutely get behind the New Zealand first idea of saying, well, you know, should these treaty principles be there? Um, but equally, once you've taken those references out of a lot of laws, uh, you still got this basic question of what does our founding document mean? Because it's still going to influence people's social attitudes, private organisations, and it's still going to seep through to public management. You're still going to have people doing court challenges saying you have an up the Waitangi Tribunal hearing saying you're not upholding the treaty. So you still need to have a clear conception of is the treaty something that unites or divides? At the moment, there's a partnership that only applies to some people it divides. We have the potential uh, to update and democratise the interpretation as something that unites. Pharmac's a good example because it's, you know, so far away from any conception of the treaty in a sense. And we can see how your bill passed into law and passed at referendum would impact on Pharmac. Because what you're saying is at the moment, Pharmac that's in the business of buying drugs and what drugs on behalf of all New Zealanders is having to have regard to the treaty and presumably the principles of the treaty. They have no clue what they are. So they have to employ someone to tell them what they are. I'm assuming this. Having been told what they are, they're obligated to follow that understanding. And so the organisation gets surrendered to what someone's interpretation of these principles of the treaty are, and we see this across department after department. It goes completely off course. I'm assuming that once your bill gets passed into law and passed at referendum, 
that no longer becomes an issue because Pharmac would look at the principles of the Treaty Act and they would say, yes, we can follow that. It makes sense for what we're trying to do. They don't need to have someone interpreting constantly what the principles of the day are. Is that your grasp of it? Yep, I think it will dramatically simplify it. They'll say, well, we need to treat people equally. And bear in mind, there may be areas where Maori people, for reasons of genetics or whatever, might be more susceptible um, to some illnesses or, or may get more benefit from some treatments. And, and Pharmac might well take that into account, but they might equally do it for Pacific people or European people or Asian people or Indian people. You know, there's, mm-hmm. there's all sorts of possibilities. What will, what will be gone is the idea that you have to treat uh, people differently because they're Maori. And that's, I, that's what we want to get rid of. I know you're on a time constraint. You're a busy man. Um, so I'll try and be quick. Tell me, um, do you have a slight unease, given that we're talking about principles, at the idea of the majority deciding this when you could argue that these things are designed to protect a, a minority? Yeah, I think that that's a worthwhile question. A lot of people uh, have raised that. But the answer is that we're not actually taking any minority rights away. Um, you know, if you're Maori, well, you signed up to the government having the right to govern. That stays. You sign up to having self-determination over yourself, your lands, your property, tiranga, tiratanga. And you signed up to having the same rights and duties as citizens of England, which is now kind of really replaced by citizens of New Zealand. Um, no minority rights have been taken away. The, the, really, the change at the margin is that uh, the rights of self-determination over yourself and your property uh, are extended to all New Zealanders as we would think of New Zealanders today. Um, they are not uh, restricted uh, only to those who are descendant uh, of treaty signatories. Um, so, you know, I, I hear what you're saying. And if we were taking rights away from anyone, uh, then you might say, well, that's not fair to you know, have a majority vote away a minority right. The point of you know, the rule of law and uh, treaties and so on is, is to guarantee those rights. Um, but we're not taking the rights away. We're extending them. This is not like, say, having a referendum on whether there should be, say, free speech or whether we should practice uh, apartheid. Um it's actually sort of in reverse. I, I, I actually, might, it's a bad analogy, but I get, I, I, I get what you're saying. Of course, what this bill does, though, is challenge an entire industry. We call it a gravy train, but it's like a, a, a fleet of gravy trains uh, where money and power is flowing through New Zealand because of this obscurantist notion of principles of the treaty that can be interpreted and reinterpreted at will, and everyone else just has to kowtow to the concept. And we've had years and years and years of propaganda through our schools and through our media that this is good and just. And that this is a direct challenge to this. That's the tough bit, is it not? 
Well, I think that's certainly true. There's a lot of people who, um, you know, I'm sure have have done well out of you know the requirement to uh, have a, a Maori perspective in public affairs due to the partnership idea. Um, and of course, you know, we would no longer be doing that. We'd be saying your duty is to be good to all people, um, but you don't have this sort of extra. Uh, requirements and so I can understand how there'd be a group of people who would be upset by that um, but at the same time uh, I always ask the question you know what is best for the average person over time that the challenges and there are significant challenges for Maori are around education are around welfare they're around incarceration they're around home ownership they're around health and I'm not sure that, for example, saying the Three Waters Board must have a partnership uh, has actually done any uh, and, and representation uh, boards that you know involve half Maori and half non-Maori. I'm not sure that that has helped with any of those challenges that are affecting the average person because if some distant relative has had, got a government position due to the partnership interpretation, uh, and I'm some disadvantaged person with some serious social and economic challenges. Well, I'm not sure how my distant relative getting put on a board helps me. Well, I think you're sure um, about it well, being of any I benefit am. at all. Now, tell me, this is the elephant in the room, and I don't see it as the great difficulty. I think you're proceeding along uh, well. Um, Mr. Luxon, firm commitment. This thing won't see, what is it, a second reading? Mm. I saw an article, sometimes the mainstream media is worth reading. I saw an article by Thomas Coughlin in the Herald last Friday, uh, and Thomas basically just laid out all of the, the possibilities. I mean, one is you've got to have the first reading, the public submit, you have the debate. Um, but, you know, once it gets back from Select Committee, there's a few possibilities. One is that uh, you might not vote on it uh, for a period of time. You know, the Kermit Air Ocean Sanctuary Bill, that's been on the order paper since 2016. Uh, mm. And um, I'm not suggesting we want to keep it around uh, in limbo for that long, but it shows what's possible. You don't have to vote on something straight away. Uh, the second thing is that um, if you look at some of the polling, you know, 60% of people agree with us on this. Uh, Two-thirds of national voters agree with us on this. Um, only 18% are opposed uh, to the principles we put forward. Uh, I saw a poll yesterday I wasn't quite so sure about, but said that, you know, young people by a large majority are in favour of having this referendum. So um, it may be that the environment around the bill and the perceptions of it uh, are quite a lot different in a year's time if and when we, we come to actually have another vote uh, than what they are now. So the way I look at it is that, um, you, you know, you can vote down a bill, but that may not be what happens. Uh, and even if you do, you can't vote down an idea uh, much in the same way. And I draw the analogy again to euthanasia. Michael Laws put up a bill in 2005. Um, you know, there was another one uh, in 2012, which didn't get voted on. Um, oh, sorry, 1995, 2003 bills were voted down. I've got my decades mixed up there. Uh, there was another one in 2012 that didn't see the light of day. Mine got through in 2019. Um, and I hope it's not going to take, uh, you know, 24 years for this. Um, but sometimes once you start a discussion, uh, you know, you, you don't know how long it's going to take, but you will actually get eventually 
to a, a powerful idea being accepted. And the idea that t- the treaty delivers the same rights and duties or te rauranga, te rautanga, to all New Zealanders as we exist today, it's a powerful idea and no one person can vote that down. If uh, I was to have your best informed critic on my show to provide the opposite view, who would that be? Um, <clears throat> that's a very good question. Um, I'm not really seeing anyone that I think is is making uh, well-informed. You could be a better critic of your own bill than they are. Well, look, I'd be interested to see what Claudia Orange uh, believes. Um, mm-hmm. You know, she has, in fairness to her, written extensively. You know, the Treaty of Waitangi is a very good book. Um, there's a guy called Ned Fletcher who wrote the English version of the treaty, published uh, just at the end of last year. Um, I have to admit it's about 800 pages. I've only read the beginning of it, um, but I intend to read the rest of that. He's a very interesting guy. Um, Dame Anne Salmon is very interesting. Uh, because she has written extensively uh, on the newsroom website um, essays basically supporting my position. And I started quoting her and pointing out that she supported my position. Uh, And in the last month or so, she's written two pieces uh, where she completely contradicts her earlier positions um, and says, I'm the worst person in the world, and it's the worst idea she's ever heard. So I think it'll be fascinating oh, well, for I'll someone try. to interview her and ask her uh, about the the contradictions between her positions at different times. We could always have Willie Jackson on too. Um, well, you said a well-informed critic. Yes, well, um, he's a critic. Let's say we get 50-50. Uh, David Seymour, leader of the ACT Party, thank you for your time. I know you've got a meeting with officials. Uh, we've appreciated it enormously. We now understand this bill. One last question. When are you aiming to have this bill see light of day from out of officials and ready for public consultation? I would guess it will be uh, early in the second half of this year. Um, but all of that, as you'll know, it's a uh, when people say there's a lot of bureaucracy in Wellington, they ain't kidding. So we've got to get the officials, get it through Cabinet, get the agreement from about the form of it, all of that stuff. So that will... Um, that will take a wee while, but I would say uh, third quarter of uh, of this year. Well, good luck with that. Uh, that was David Seymour, leader of the ACT Party. Uh, what a bill. What a debate. What a discussion. My goodness, how's this going to play out? It's going to be very important and also extremely entertaining. Thank you for tuning in to RCR Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, just like what you're listening to. Either way, we want to hear from you. Get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or email us at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you. So connect with us today.